Welcome to the Water Pain Podcast. I'm Glyn Williams. And I'm Conrad Jacobs. Conrad, uh, we're in Canada. We are. Fantastic. Yes, we have to go all that way just to be in the same room together. We should meet more often. Yes, and maybe more locally. But anyway, as you know, we're at the ISPP, which is the International Symposium on Pediatric Pain, which is a worldwide two-yearly conference for healthcare professionals involved in treating pediatric pain. And we're in Halifax in Nova Scotia, which is just a beautiful place. Staring out of a window at just a wonderful harbour, very unlike the view out of my window in South London. Brilliant to be here, but maybe we just need to concentrate. So what have we managed to find so far? Oh, we found plenty of people to talk to. There are so many. I'm walking around here and I'm thinking to myself, oh, I want to talk to this person and that person. And maybe we can get that person on the podcast. Almost too many, really. But here in Halifax, we've actually talked to two people. We've spoken to Naval Cessna from Boston, and that podcast will be published in a few weeks. But today we'll be talking to Susmita Kashkazuk. And Susmita works at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, and she's also a professor at the University of Cincinnati Department of Pediatrics and Anesthesiology. And Susmita did the opening plenary here at the ISPP which was called Combining Psychosocial and Novel Physical Therapy Interventions to Treat Adolescents with Chronic Musculoskeletal Pain. Very, very interesting plenary. It was, it was. But before we get into talking to Susmita, we've been doing what we're really meant to be here for rather than the podcast and uh, ourselves attending the conference. So what have you found that's been interesting? Well, this is the first day of the conference for me. And I went to a very interesting symposium called Innovations in Intensive Interdisciplinary Pain Treatment, Novel Interventions to Enhance Patient Experience and Outcomes Before, During and After Pediatric Pain Rehabilitation. And it's a very, very important topic because we all want to improve our outcomes. We want to improve engagement with our programs. And one of the most interesting talks during that symposium was by Professor Julia Wager from Datteln in Germany, and they actually have one of the largest pain rehab centers in the world. And what they did was the following. They did their usual pain management program, and then a social worker would follow up patients and their families routinely after the program. And the social worker contacted families on average 10 times after the program. And they discussed the need for support, They helped families to liaise with relevant services, but also very importantly, they encouraged them to use strategies that they had learned during the pain management program. And what they found was that this approach really helped patients and families in all areas, really, in terms of pain intensity, ability to cope, but also in terms of their psychological functioning, especially in the long term. And that's the holy grail, really. How do we help patients in the long term? And this approach is now likely to become part of standard care in Germany. Really, really interesting and helpful talk, which gives us lots to think about. How do we help patients after a program? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Conrad. It's that idea, isn't it, that they come for a fixed period of time to a program and you make great strides, but how do you maintain that? And that's so critical because that's, A, from a point of view of efficacy, because you want what you've done to help that young person, help them get back into their life and sustain that improvement. But two, and this is really important, maybe for us in the UK who are struggling to build programs like this, you know, to show that that you have make long-term benefits gives you that 
idea that you can approach the people who pay for all of this, the NHS commissioners or whichever country you happen to be in, in the UK and get the funding because they show, you know, you'll show that it works and you'll show that it saves money for the healthcare system in the long term. So I agree. Fascinating talk. As you said, the other person we've, we've come across is, is Naval Sethner, who we, we actually talked to about interdisciplinary pain management programs, um, the one he set up in Boston. So that's a really good lead into the next podcast as well, where we'll talk in more depth about that. Definitely. What about you, Glenn? What interesting talks have you been to? One that I've really enjoyed was listening to Dr. Marsha Treadwell, and she was talking about pain management in sickle cell children. And they're a group who I see quite a lot of in London, and they're often really challenging cases. You know, they're young people who come with what is inherently a very difficult disease to, well, to treat in the sense that they have a lot of engagement with healthcare services. It's very painful and it has an awful lot of impact on the quality of their life, both from the sickle cell disease point of view, but also the pain that they experience. And she took us through trying to manage these children better. And her main thrust, well, there were two main thrusts. One was, sadly, which is probably very true, is about the under-recognition of pain in this group by healthcare professionals. You know, they are a group who unfortunately attend hospital very frequently. With the way the services are set up, every time they attend, they probably see different people, especially in the accident and emergency department. And there is an element that their pain is under-reported. Oh, well, the significance of their pain is underappreciated by healthcare professionals. And so she was developing a program where the young person would carry a, a sort of passport around, if you like, of what the agreed management was if they happened to have an acute episode. And I thought that was such a simple, but such a good thing to do. And then the second part of that, which was maybe a theme that ran through the conference, actually, is about all of our opinions about diversity and inclusion and how, because of the very nature of sickle cell disease, the populations who, who unfortunately suffer from it are potentially the populations who are often discriminated against. And maybe that comes across in healthcare interactions. And one of the biggest messages that came through the, from the patients was how they didn't ever feel listened to. And there's, I think there's a really big lesson there for all of us. That all sounds really, really interesting, Glenn. It's turning out to be a very, very interesting conference. Do you think it's time that we turn to our guest? Absolutely. Conrad, we're still here in Halifax at the conference, having a lovely time. And we managed to uh, persuade Susmita to come and talk to us. We're very grateful to have you here and really interested to see what you have to say. We very much enjoyed your talk earlier in the week. But we'd like to let people know a little bit about you before we start. So the first thing we'd like to know is what's your favourite place on earth and why? Ah, my favourite place on earth, I would have to say, is a place called Asheville in North Carolina, it's in the hills, it's in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And coincidentally, I spent some years growing up in India in the south in what's called the Nilgiri Hills, which is also Blue Mountains. And so Asheville just reminds me, you know, after I relocated to the States of this place I grew up in, and it's in the mountains and uh, just the ambience and the peacefulness around that. So it's my favorite place to go. We do that once a year. That sounds amazing. So the next question, and this is where we definitely find out a little bit more about you, but something that irritates you and why? As a scientist, I'm a behavioral scientist. As you know, I'm a, a clinical psychologist. And oftentimes what we do in psychology is sometimes seen as sort of a, a softer science, if you will. 
as opposed to some of the physical sciences. And so I, I feel like what we do well is, in fact, more than some other sciences, is really objectively defined just because as a social science, we've had to really be very careful about describing what we do. And so as a result of that, I really am very data-driven in many of the conclusions and the assumptions that I make. And what irritates me, uh, to answer your question, is when individuals have opinions that are not necessarily very science or data-driven, but are um, are very talkative about it. <laughs> and uh, that is probably something that, you know, not, not a lot irritates me, but that can sometimes kind of get my dander up a little bit. I think people in the natural sciences can sometimes be a little bit dismissive about it. You're a social scientist as well, right? You know, you know what I'm talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's sometimes almost the complexity of psychology makes us think more about kind of actually what we're doing and how we're doing things. Yeah, and it makes it in some ways more difficult. Right. Almost. And and I mean, what we study is essentially what what it is to be human, you know, what it is to have certain experiences. And that is so important and just the behavioral and social aspects of things. But we do, I believe, define what we study quite well. But it is complex, always. I agree. How did you get involved in pain? It's actually been a long journey to that. I started out as a clinical psychologist I studied in India. I I got my master's degree in India primarily as a clinician and was very interested in health psychology and doing research. And unfortunately, in India, the idea of research and doing your PhD there, you know, you do your PhD and then you typically end up teaching. But having a research career there is there just aren't the resources to do that sort of thing. So I applied to come to the States and initially started off studying stress and cardiovascular reactivity and was very interested in psychophysiology. And as a result, I became quite good with the instrumentation of psychophysiology and ended up doing clinical rotations in biofeedback. And biofeedback at the time was being used in many pain centers and pain clinics. And uh, so just started working with individuals with chronic pain and realizing that we could actually help people gain physiologic control over some body functions that we assumed we did not have control over, and so started doing more clinical rotations in pain and uh, just got drawn to the field. And my initial training was in adult chronic pain, and so I sort of came at it from that angle and then over the years have become more and more involved in pediatric pain and just have been doing that for the last two decades and, and love working with the pediatric population. It is a brilliant population to work with, I agree. But what fascinates you about pain? Why pain? You know, there is something about the subjective quality of pain in that it is a physical experience, but it also has a huge emotional and social component. And so it is that whole biopsychosocial aspect of things. And when you're treating pain... As a psychologist, you know, you're used to 
sort of being in a field where you're treating mental and emotional disorders, when you're treating physical disorders, you're usually helping somebody cope with a chronic illness or something. But as a psychologist, you're actually treating the pain. And so you are an integral part of that medical team. And so the whole interdisciplinary aspect of it is what really fascinates me. And do you have a favorite article or book that you could recommend about pain? There's actually two. One was written by Dr. Lonnie Zeltzer at UCLA. And as you know, she's the pioneer in the field of pediatric pain. And it was a book written that was geared towards primary care doctors, pediatricians, and also families. And I honestly forget the name of the book, but it is available on Amazon. Dr. Zeltzer is the author. And there is another book that came out recently, which is a workbook for teens with pain. And I absolutely love this book. It is by Dr. Rachel Zafness. I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of interviewing her because she is amazing. She is in Palo Alto and she's a pain psychologist who's written a workbook for teens with pain. And it's like a chronic pain workbook, I believe it's called. But I actually read the book and I tried each of the strategies and just the language that she uses to talk to teens in pain is just so engaging and wonderful. So I recommend that book a lot in our clinics. How does she change the language for that age group? Well, it's really the analogies that she uses. It's like, how how do you know when your body is in stress or what to do about sleep difficulties and how do you distract yourself? And it's the examples and the analogies. She talks to a teen like she's a best friend, somebody, you know, who can really relate to them. We'll put both of those books on the, on the website. Afterwards. That would be wonderful. You've had a long and distinguished research career in the field of chronic pain. But what would you say are three findings from your research that you are most proud of? So the first one I would start with is the trial where we showed that cognitive behavioral therapy, and I know there's a bunch of studies out there, but this was the first trial of large scale that showed that cognitive behavioral therapy was definitively better than just seeing a friendly psychologist for support and education about pain. There was something specific about the treatment itself that was helpful in improving disability and in reducing pain in adolescents with chronic musculoskeletal pain. Uh, So that was a paper that we published in 2012 that I was really proud of because at the time it was rare to have one of these more definitive type of trials. So it was the finding that CBT was helpful, but it was also the fact that it was just such a nicely done trial. I was very proud of that. And so that that's one of the things. And then the other two, I would say, are things we presented on actually at this conference is really the collaborations, a result of the collaborations that we developed, where we published on the biomechanics and the alterations in how children with musculoskeletal pain move and their movement competence. And that gives us avenues to think about future directions in treatment. Uh, So that was one. And then the other 
group of studies that we've done is in the neuroscience of chronic musculoskeletal pain. And those are studies that are coming out. One just came out in arthritis and rheumatology showing alterations in the pain pathways. So this is really showing some of the biology behind the alterations in pain sensitivity that teens with fibromyalgia in particular face. And it always helps in the field in general where you have something that is more of a biomarker that could be associated with pain. So those are the sort of areas that I'm particularly proud of. You presented some of that data at the talk you gave recently, and I was fascinated by the um, physiotherapy or intervention that you're now doing, which is far more targeted with sports science and analyzing movement. I just wonder if you'd tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, and that started out really this collaboration with sports medicine when, I'll tell you what really fascinated me when I was watching my colleague, Dr. Greg Meyer, present. He works with these elite athletes and so on. And I was like, man, you know, the lab that they have where they do the motion capture was to me just fascinating. So I went to do a visit and look at it. And I mean, it just to me was something that we had never really done in pain, leave alone pediatric pain, is actually quantify the physics of movement, the the kinetics and the kinematics, how much force you're putting into a movement, what, you know, your strength, your postural control, they can quantify all of these things. And to me, it was just like this big aha light bulb went off. So we're doing this with athletes all the time. In the U.S., as we know, we are very obsessed with sport. Well, in most countries, we are obsessed with some sport or the other, (laughs) you know, whether it's cricket or whether it's football or baseball, whatever. And we are doing all of this for our athletes. And I was like, well, what about our teens with pain? This should really be something we dive deeper into. And do you find that the doing it this way sort of helps the engagement of the teenager as well because it gives oh, them absolutely. sort of knowledge and focus. And it, absolutely. And also it's something that looks a bit revolutionary. Yeah, it is. And so for them, it's like this is Pixar technology, right? So this is like 3D motion capture. They can sort of see themselves move in space. So for them, it is cool. The other thing is that the treatment is delivered not in a rehab setting, but in a gym where the athletes work out. So they are kind of the cool kids in a sense because they are not going to the hospital because they're sick and they're in a rehab unit. And, you know, like that whole illness-focused model, this is more a health-focused model. Like, I can do that. You know, I can bring myself up to being ready for, you know, maybe not a competitive sport, but to, to play. I mean, that's the business of children is to play. Very excited to see the results. Hopefully they'll be out soon. And and it ties in quite nicely with some research that we're actually doing right now. Um, we're doing a gait analysis yeah. of children with chronic pain. Yes. And, and we're, we're using an yeah. app to measure children's okay. gait. Yeah. And we're trying to relate it to... Do you do it on their phones? Or? Yeah, on yeah, their phones. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I would love to read about it because the technology is getting better yeah. and better. And also, because it is so important in sport, right, that is a big audience and so, uh, or a big user group. So for children with chronic pain, I mean, if we can adapt and use some of these things. So now from that, you know, I showed that picture where we are actually using markers 
to do the motion capture analysis. Now in our lab, we have markerless technology. So all we do is just use the cameras and then the person stands there, kind of turns around, we calibrate so that that skeleton is sort of superimposed. And once the cameras are calibrated, then we don't need any of these markers and so on to do that, that which takes a good 30 minutes off of our prep time. So a person just steps in and then we can do the 3D motion capture without needing that. So the technology just keeps evolving and it's it's great. And I agree with you that we should yeah. use it. Yeah. We should use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you talked about those things, but there's another large area of your work that we'd like to discuss with you today. And that's really about what happens to young people with chronic pain when they go into adulthood. So to begin yes. with, could you sort of summarize in a nutshell, what our knowledge about that is. Yes. So there is more being published in this area, and I, I'm really happy about that. So they're now looking at large cohorts of adolescents from some of these national studies, identifying those that had chronic pain in childhood and their outcomes in adulthood. And this is just broadly in some of these population-based samples. So that's not my work, but that is work that is coming out more recently that is showing that chronic pain in childhood can have long-term outcomes, not just in terms of physical health and continuing pain problems into adulthood, but also some of those social and developmental sorts of outcomes that youth are expected to achieve. So in my own research, I'm you know, focusing more on specific populations. So we are looking at our teens with chronic musculoskeletal pain. And we published a study where we followed them very systematically compared to their healthy peers into their young adult years. So briefly, here's what we found. 80% of those who were diagnosed with a chronic widespread pain condition in adolescence continued to have some symptoms to some degree when they were young adults. And I'm talking about middle 20s. And they continue to have some symptoms. Sometimes the pain is not always primary, but it may be fatigue, sleep difficulties, and some of those associated symptoms with discomfort and pain. But sometimes pain is not the primary symptom they're experiencing. But what was a little concerning was that 50% of the sample went on to have a diagnosable chronic pain condition in adulthood. And so they were the ones probably that were not doing as well. So there are some who I believe learn to sort of adjust and live with a certain amount of pain and lead perfectly normal lives. But there are others that tend not to do so well. So we actually had sort of three different trajectories of some people who say somewhat stable and some who have more problems over time. And I do believe those are the ones that end up in adult pain centers and present as being the most complex patients that are more difficult to treat than others who may have had pain when they were younger, but have they don't necessarily seek medical care anymore because they kind of know what they have and they know how to deal with it. And they sort of move on and don't end up in an adult pain center. But there is a small subgroup that end up having more severe and continuing problems into adulthood. And those are the ones we are the most worried about. And I would love to know how we start to predict who is going to have those outcomes. And just to clarify, these were children who've been through a pain management program and yet still had significant problems in 
their mid-20s. Right. They may or may not have received the full multidisciplinary pain program. So these were youth who had seen either rheumatology or the pain clinic. So, I mean, they had all received treatment of some kind, and chances are they received some form of physiotherapy or some form of CBT over time and certainly had their medications managed. So these were patients that had been seeking treatment and received treatment over time. Yeah. And of course, we, we in pain management, whether that's medical management or pain management program, we only see the tip of the iceberg. We only see a tiny, tiny percentage of all the children out there who are in pain. Do you have any sense of what happens to the children almost, as it were, at the bottom of the of the yeah, pyramid? Yeah. So I think, well, there's the community level and then there's primary care. So I think at the level of primary care, they probably tend to see patients with maybe some of the more localized conditions like headache or belly pain or those sorts of things. And to some extent, some of those are are managed fairly well. Many of them who are not well-managed go into subspecialty care at a GI clinic or a neurology clinic or a rheumatology clinic or orthopedic clinic. And then, so the ones that we see in pain management are, like you say, the tip of the iceberg in, in the sense that they may or may not have improved very much from all of those. So the ones that are truly complex do end up in these interdisciplinary pain clinics. But then again, there is also in the community, do we know how many children there are out there that may have some level of chronic pain that never really show up to our clinics? As we know, at least in the U.S., most of the children that come to our clinics are mostly uh, from relatively middle-class backgrounds, white Caucasian patients and families. And so there are a diversity of patients that may or may not ever make it to our pain clinics. And unfortunately, we don't know a lot about that. So we certainly need more population-based studies, more school-based studies to really get a sense of how much of that is happening. Do we have any work from adult clinics which sort of tell us how many children are turning up in adult clinics with chronic pain who report that they've had pain since childhood, but haven't necessarily then seen a pain clinic? That is a really good question. And one I have asked my adult pain center colleagues, because they tend to see patients, uh, you know, more their 40s, 50s, that sort of thing. And I ask them how often they ask the families or the patients themselves, how many years they've had pain. And that is, they don't systematically do that, interestingly enough, because, you know, they just ask the patient, how many years have you been in the pain? And the patient's usually like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've had several years of pain, but I don't know that it's very well documented. Now, in talking to some patients themselves, and this is, again, purely anecdotal, I do not have a research study to support this, Many of them said that they did have some type of pain and it may have been chronic headache or belly pain or something in childhood, but never really sought care for it, didn't really do anything about it. But we don't really have good data on that. And do you think that if we could, you know, knowing the results of the patients you do see and the ones, how they turn out into adult clinic, do you think we're not seeing enough young children so that we are creating a problem by not being more aggressive in our treatment of younger children and storing up a problem for adults. So so are you talking about 
prevention at an earlier level? Or are you talking about more powerful treatments for the ones that we do see? Well, I'm, I'm talking, I am talking about more prevention, but it's I trying see. to identify the children we don't see and yes. see more of them yes. would make a difference in the adult world and, and adult pain practice. Yes, I, I actually do think that is the case because I think we do need to catch them probably at a primary or a secondary care level before they end up in that tip of the iceberg situation where they, where they are in the pain clinic. And so I'm actually trying to focus some of my work now in catching youth when they've gone from primary care to the secondary care. So they've come now to rheumatology or to GI clinic or to orthopedics, because a lot of times the focus is still on what is the disease? What is the underlying inflammation? Can we find those ones that are going to develop either a secondary pain condition or have a primary pain condition in the first place, which is why they're there, can we do proper screening at a primary care level or at a secondary subspecialty level so that we start treating them right then and there before they end up becoming more complex over time? And the second point you made there, which is also was part of the question, was have you noticed a difference really as, you know, your pain management has evolved and your pain management programs have evolved, that that makes a difference. So as you said, using better or more intensive or more aggressive or more effective pain management in the childhood therefore makes gives a better outcome into adults. I can't imagine why it wouldn't. Oh, I don't know that we have the data yet, yet to support that, but that is the goal, right? So what we're doing currently is, at least for our Fit Teens program, since we have a group of over 350 patients in this trial, we are creating a registry. And that's what we need to do more of, is create these registries and then really systematically collect the data, follow them through and see what treatments they've had and see if we can prevent. And like I said in the talk yesterday, if we can do more translational studies to see if we can essentially rewire the central nervous system, rewire the pain processing pathways to see if we can prevent this problem from becoming the substantial problem it is in adulthood, I think we have the potential to do that in pediatric pain. And part of that is, I guess, understanding better which children do well and which children are more likely not to do well. Do we know, do we about any predictors? So as a psychologist, I tend to study psychological predictors, which is not to say those are the only predictors, but that's what I do. So the two things I have looked at are mood symptoms, depressive symptoms, and family And a couple of things that we are finding is those who have not high levels of depressive symptoms necessarily to start with, but those who have a trajectory of depressive symptoms that increase over time, showing that they are progressively coping less and less well with their symptoms are the ones that tend to have the highest levels of pain impact and disability as they get older. Yeah, that makes right? sense, of course. Yeah. Right. Because if you have pain and you're depressed, you're depressed. it's it feeds off of difficult. one another. Right. Yeah. But what's interesting is it's not necessarily the level of depressive symptoms you show when you show up in clinic, because we've found that sometimes a 
teen who looks very depressed when we first see them in clinic, but they have an improving trajectory of depressive symptoms. And that could be maybe they grew up and went to college and came out of a difficult family environment and just things began to get better. And so they seem to do better over time. And then the other factor is parenting and parenting styles. So if there are parents in the home who perhaps may also have a chronic pain syndrome themselves or are not coping as as well, and perhaps not because they are bad parents, but because they tend to become very overprotective of their child in pain, maybe because of experiences they've had or whatever. But if they are, in a sense, parenting in such a way that the child is afraid to try new things, is afraid to sort of push their limits, which as an adolescent, that's what you want them to do is develop that sort of independence. And if that overprotection is is there, that sometimes can uh, lead to the child having more of an impact over time. It's interesting because uh, the German group presented some data that backs up exactly what you've just been saying is that they they tend to see that with time, it's more than psychological problems that predict a poorer outcome, you yeah. know, or that the outcomes that they've achieved yeah. aren't sustained if there's more of those factors yeah. occurring again for the young person. Yeah, it, it's true. But again, it's a biopsychosocial thing. So, I mean, I think we should take those findings and I think we also should look a little bit deeper and and look at some of the biology aspects too. So as far as the genetics and the immune and the neuroinflammation, I mean, those are also things we know very little about that we still have to do that work and continue to look more at some of the psychosocial predictors. Those are important, but I think we really need to get the whole picture. How do you think we should be transitioning children into adult services? Ah, that is the million dollar question because healthcare systems in each country, first of all, are very different. So I can speak to at least North America. Some of the best work has come out of Canada, where people like Paula Forgeron and others have done some qualitative interviews of youth that have transitioned to adulthood and really pointing out some of those challenges of transitioning to adult care. Because when you go to the adult pain models, they are not necessarily the most family-centered. The whole culture of adult pain management is very different than pediatric pain management. And there is still a huge gap that I think we are not addressing. And I think there are some very good transition models in other illnesses, like in diabetes or in asthma or in other chronic illnesses where they begin the transition process, even while the child is in their sort of high school years and as they're approaching young adulthood. So in the clinics, they start to provide them with a certain amount of education and teaching them how to communicate about their needs and telling them a little bit more about what the adult pain service is like. Ideally, there should be a bridge person, like potentially a nurse or somebody who can help them with that initial transition to put them in contact with the people that maybe would be caring for them and that they would be not just a GP, 
but somebody who knows about pain management and the needs of the youth to transition them over. Because one of the things some of the young adults tell us is that sometimes even for things like support groups, they are referred to a support group where the people are in their 40s and 50s and they just cannot relate to them. So they just need young adult care. So there are, I'm aware there are a few clinics that have now started young adult clinics which I think is great, but I don't know. I think that that is fabulous. I don't know that that can be done everywhere, depending on the resources that are available around the medical centers. But I think we need more models to do that well. Doesn't transitioning a child from child services to adult services, doesn't that signal that the treatment has failed? Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to teach the child and the family's strategies to become totally independent. So why would they need to be transitioned to adult services if we've been successful? Yeah, I mean, that that's a great question. I think where we are with treatments right now, that is the reality. We are not 100% successful. I'm doing trials, we're doing trials, and we can get them up to a certain point where they're coping well. The reality is that even those who are coping reasonably well, because we haven't found the ultimate cure for pain, there may be times when they have flares and there may be times where they do need to go in for a little bit of medication management, for a little bit of a tune-up for their physio. But if we can educate them on what their needs are and what to ask for, I think they can more successfully reach the outcome of managing pain well in adulthood. So although we are not 100% successful, I wouldn't necessarily call that a failure, but it is a chronic condition. You know, people with diabetes need to be managed over time. So I think that's where we're at right now. So we're unbelievably grateful for your time. It's been really oh, it's interesting. Been wonderful. And we've just got one last question yes. for you. Is what do you like about working in chronic pain? Well, obviously the children and the adolescents especially. That is got to be one of my favorite age groups to work with just because of their true honesty, their willingness to be challenging and sort of keep you humble about what you do. And pediatric pain in particular, I just feel that we have tools, we are developing the knowledge and we can have such an impact on youth at a time when they are still developing and have an impact so that it really prevents adult chronic pain from becoming as bad of a problem as it is. Because as I said, I trained in adult chronic pain and I saw how tough, how tough it is to treat pain when it reaches that level. So that's what I love about being in pediatrics. Thank you. Well, it's been lovely. Thank you. Thank you so much. Enjoy Halifax and enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you. And you too. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Bye. Bye. That was fascinating, Glenn. What did you make of it? Yeah, no, again, really interesting. Um, She's a great speaker and uh, it's very generous of her to give us her time. I think the thing that really came home to me is despite the fact that we have a bit of knowledge about young people who've had chronic pain in during you know childhood and adolescence about what happens to them in adult life we really don't have very much and it's sort of a big gap in all of our knowledges and it's sort of a big gap really in uh, all of us in the way we assess our data and assess our patients you know there's not enough of us around the world following our patients up for that length of time and i really think we all need to concentrate on that a bit more sort of understanding if what you know i suppose it makes sense to us that what we do in childhood for these patients 
will help them in adult life, but we don't really know that. And so I think we need far more research in all aspects of that, you know, how well our treatment is and how much that carries through, what sort of treatments work better for patients going into adult life. And equally, the adults need to look at it a little bit more in the sense of if they get a lot of chronic pain patients, how many of them had pain in childhood, you know, that we never see, you know, is there a much bigger problem there than we're all anticipating? And so therefore, if we did more, identified more young people at a younger age, would that then make a positive difference going forward? Absolutely. And it's made me think about my own service, really. So we, we do outcome measures when we first see a patient in pain clinic. We do it at the end of a pain management program, then six weeks later, and then six months later. But should we be seeing them six years later? Who knows? Ten years later? Should we be following them up much, much later? And in a way, I felt this was a bit of a call to arms as well for all services to understand better what happens to our patients in the long term after an intervention. Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. I mean, when patients come to us, as you say, we often all do outcomes for up to about a year afterwards, but maybe we should try and get them committed to the fact that we can follow them up into later life. Obviously, we'll lose a proportion of them as time goes on, but even the ones that we can follow up will provide us with such good information. Exactly. Anyway, Conrad, that's, uh, that was brilliant. Um, and it's sort of the end of the day in Halifax. We can see the sun setting over the harbour. Probably time for us to go and get something to eat. And we'll uh, see everybody next time for the next episode from Canada. Absolutely. Thank you all for listening. Until next time. Yeah. And it's your beer first, Conrad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But your, your second and third. Yeah, absolutely. Right. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye.